and to be in the Lord's Word. Thank you for your welcome. Um, it's, uh, it's just wonderful to be here. As uh, John mentioned, I'm from Maple Avenue Baptist Church and know that they are pre- praying for you even now. Right, right about exactly now. Uh, it's just sort of part of our custom. And so you're, you're in the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Georgetown. And, um, and this morning, as, as we read, I'm hoping we can spend a little bit of time in uh, the book of uh, Colossians. Um, before I dive in, uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I, I pray that you would bless our time together reading and understanding your word. May your truths take root in our heart even as our faith takes root in your word. Amen. So as mentioned, I I spent a little bit of time in the book of Colossians lately and just found it to be very, very encouraging. Um, The the book of Colossians, as uh, I'm sure you know, is a letter written by, by Paul, and he's writing to a church in Colossae. It's a young church. It was established by a godly man named Epaphras, who sat under Paul's teaching in Ephesus. So he learned directly from Paul. He received very good teaching. And then he went home and planted a church uh, in Colossae. And so this, is, this letter is a, a guard against false teaching that is seeping into this rather immature church. But more generally... Um, we, we know that in addressing the church in, uh, in Colossae, Paul is providing a universal guidance to all believers about how to live out their faith in Christ and not stray from the gospel of the Bible. So it's profitable for all of us to dig into God's word this morning. Um, the passage itself, I think we'll see that Paul is laying out three, three things in this passage. In verses 6 and 7, Paul uh, lays out a call to walk the narrow path. Then in verse 8, Paul shines a light on the misdirection of the false gospel. And then in verses 9 through to the end of our passage, to 15... Paul lays out directions. He walks us back to the cross. And along the way, we find some landmarks that are going to help guide us in our faith. So that's how we'll tackle tackle the, the, the text this morning. So let's start with our first section. Paul's call to walk the narrow path, to live out our faith faithfully, faithful to Christ as we first received him. Our passage begins with the word therefore, always prompting us to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And in this case, the the word links our passage to the previous verses. So you can look in your Bible at uh, Colossians 2, 4 to 5, and you'll see there, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This passage is directly introduced as Paul's guidance to the Colossian church about these false teachings that seem plausible. They sound like they make sense, but they're put forth in bad faith 
by people who have their own agenda. In the first verse of our passage, verse 6, Paul gets to the point that he's making, actually, in the, it's the meat of the entire letter. It's Paul's appeal to walk in Christ as we have received Christ, a call to walk the walk. Paul is urging these young believers to not let themselves be led down a wrong path, but to maintain their faith just as they came to it. You read, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do not add to him. Do not subtract from him. Do not alter him. Stay true to who he is. I'm assuming you're all familiar with a children's game of broken telephone. We know that the original message that gets whispered by the first into the ear of the second and then repeated down the line to the last, the final participant, it'll, that message will be completely unrecognizable as it gets blurted out at the end. And that's because we mishear, we misinterpret, we fill in blanks. Well, hear this. You do not want to play broken telephone with the word of God. That's what we're put in guard against here. Don't be fooled into believing that what's get blurted out at the end of the broken telephone is true to the original message. Go back to the source and hear the original message as it was first spoken. Don't put your trust in man's ability to faithfully retell what we heard without distorting it with our own bias, our own agenda. That's why, tongue-in-cheek, I was saying, only trust what I say that is rooted in this book. Nothing else can be trusted. And Paul is clear. We must keep the message pure, unspoiled. And so for that, we need to sit at the feet of Christ, not all the way down the table from him. You want to clearly hear directly from Christ through his word. And this is the word of Christ. This is the Bible. Never stray from it. It is your source of truth. To use Paul's own illustration, the pure gospel is the good soil for your faith to take root in, to grow in, built up and established. You see, the solid root system allows the oak tree to grow as tall as its roots grow deep. I love this simple little illustration so much. In fact, I love it so much that I went down a bit of a rabbit trail um, and read up a little bit on some botanical scientific articles about the root system of trees. And I actually love it a lot more now because I always knew that, you know, the root system of a tree was what it allowed it not to fall over. Botanists call this anchorage. The roots anchor the tree. But anchorage is actually the only one of four different scientific functions of the roots. You might guess some of the others. Resource acquisition, you know, it sucks up water. Some kid put it that way for me. Um, it stores resources as well, which I didn't know. And then lastly, apparently, the root system is used for communication. 
I thought Tolkien was kind of way out there. But you see, trees communicate through roots, apparently. Now, you may not know this, depending on your botanical literacy, but trees grow in communities called forests. <laughs> I went pretty deep. And the trees of the forest communicate with each other. I'm going to quote the scientific article, because obviously you're going to think I made this up otherwise. Trees of the same species are communal, which is actually why you see the same types of trees bunched together in forests. Um, they support each other's growth, and they send distress signals about drought, disease, or insect attacks. And other trees alter their behavior to withstand these attacks. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, all the more fascinating because this is what Paul is signaling to the church in Colossae. You're not alone. You're part of the family of Christ. And I'm warning you, you're under attack. And you need to fight off this external threat. But you have everything you need to withstand the assault. You already have everything you need to grow heavenward, established in the faith. That's the word that Paul uses, established. You know, if a company tells you that they were established in 1915 or something, they're not trying to communicate that they're old and dusty. They're communicating to you that they have withstood the test of time. That they have lived and thrived and grown through societal changes and probably pandemics and economic crashes, but they're still here today. And your faith was established when Christ revealed himself to you as your Lord and your Savior. And by rooting your faith deep into the fertile soil of Christ's love and grace, you will not only withstand external assaults, but you will grow and flourish, ever stretching further towards heaven. And it's important for your faith to be rooted because the Bible warns it will be tested. Peter tells us, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And these trials are what make this little illustration so impactful. When it says that your faith should be rooted like a tree. Because all four of these botanical functions of roots actually become important in facing trials. Anchorage, resource acquisition, storage, and communication. Because the tests come in different forms. We know that the winds of anxiety and distress will test the anchorage of your faith. The winds of instability and insecurity, they're stirred up by the world around us. And your rooted faith will give you hope, like an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Even in the face of all the uncertainty of economic downturns, job security, political strife, even war, an anchored faith stands firm in Christ against the winds of the world. 
And the world will also put temptations in your path. And when these tests befall you, will your faith be well nourished? A steady diet of Bible and prayer will nourish your soul and your faith will not wither. Pray and live in the Bible and the Holy Spirit will be your sustenance, building you up and sanctifying you, growing you more and more in the likeness of Christ, stretching you literally heavenward. And we'll also experience droughts, you know, terrible times of grief, of grief and sadness, affliction, depression. We likely will not be spared these. And in that time, will your faith have stored up enough sustenance to see you through that dry season? A strong faith nurtured and lived out does not crumble. A rooted faith recalls God's past provision and recalls God's promises to see us through, promises that his grace is sufficient. And finally, we likely will not be spared external attacks to our faith. Because frankly, the world hates what we stand for and we see it every day. I mean, the forces of evil are emboldened. They're after you. It's a full frontal assault. But we're not alone. We're part of one global body. The body of Christ cannot be defeated. Even under extreme persecution, yet the bride of Christ flourishes. The church grows and the gospel spreads as we warn each other about false teachings and encourage each other in fellowship and build each other up in prayer. No hurricane winds, no droughts, no dark cold spells, not even coordinated attacks can claim your faith when its roots run deep into the fertile soil of the gospel and cling to the solid rock of Christ. That's your home. That's where your roots are. Never get lost out there. Never lose your way home. Be grateful. Abound in thanksgiving, Paul says, for what you have received, what you were taught. It's perfect just the way it is. That's the first section of this passage. So I want to turn our attention to Paul's warning about the misdirection of the false gospel trying to get you lost out in the wilderness. You see, in verse 8, Paul tells us why it's so important to confidently know the pure gospel, to stay faithful to its message. Someone's come along and is trying to twist the gospel into their own message. This is the second section of our sermon. False teachers are rebranding the gospel we're told according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, to make it suit their own purposes. These days, you see churches do this to make the gospel resonate better with their audience. And they're doing this, even this morning, by recasting Christ 
like a marketing executive recasts a corporate mascot with someone who's more palatable to their audience's sensitivities, less subversive. How easily it can happen and how dangerous it is and sadly just how often it happens. As Paul warns, it appears reasonable to reinterpret Christ through the lens of the world, through the lens of our age, the zeitgeist. Well, surely if Christ had known then what we know now, then he would have responded in such and such a way. They treat their faith like fashion, you know, shoulder pads are in and streamlined lines are out. So take this part in and let that part out. Do what you have to do so that you don't get relegated to last year's trends. Don't, what could be worse, right, than be out of fashion? But Paul warns against this temptation to update Christ to fit in with the latest worldly trend. And in fact, if you have your Bible open, still look at verse 8 again. See to it. This is a command. You were given the gift of faith. That was a gift. But now see to it that it is kept safe and unspoiled. We do not see Christ through the lens of the world. We see the world through the lens of Christ. In a world that is obsessed with the need for an overhaul or a makeover, a facelift, a redesign, an update, a reboot, a revamp, a refresh, you get the idea. A world where everyone is obsessed with the latest and greatest, the newest and shiniest, where no one trusts the way it was and only wants to strive towards the way of progress. See to it that you are out of date, out of fashion, anachronistic, rooted in the ancient truth of the Bible and what it tells of Christ, the one who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because the way forward for us who are in Christ is the way back to the cross. That's our home. The world is not our home. We sojourn through it. Our home is at the foot of the cross. That's where our roots are. That's where we build up our life. So how do we maintain that anachronism, that deep-rooted faith? This is the focus of the third section of this sermon and Paul's focus for the rest of the passage. You can think of it as a walk, a march back to the cross. It's a pilgrimage in the best possible sense of the term. It's an important pilgrimage because it ensures that we do not get lost while we're sojourning through this world. The cross is our pole star, our true north. As long as we know where we are relative to the cross, we can never get lost. And so Paul wants to ensure we can always make our way back, our way home to the cross. So a bit like a, a very caring parent who is letting their child walk home from school by themselves for the first time, he outlines directions describing recognizable landmarks along the way. You're going to walk out of the school's front doors and towards the park. You remember that park. 
You walk through the park down to the highway. Now, you're going to be very careful when you cross the highway at the crosswalk. And then you head down two more blocks towards the post office, and you can see our home from there. You can make it from there. That's what Paul is doing here. He's outlining three landmarks to make sure you do not get lost. So let's follow Paul's directions home to the cross. Landmark one, you see them in verses 9 and 10. Christ is sufficient. Christ has all authority and we are filled in him who has all authority. I'll tell you a very quick story because as John mentioned, uh, I have a secular job. I just do this for fun. Um, I had a meeting recently with, uh, with a new important client. And I, was, uh, I had to meet them at their head office. And I was running a little bit late. And so I ran up the, the stairs sort of two by two to the front door of their head office. And as I opened the front door, I noticed from the corner of my eye, there was a, an elderly gentleman making his way up the stairs. And I kind of held the door in a way that suggested I would hold it for him. Not that I would normally slam the door in the face of an older gentleman. But I was running a little late and I may have checked my watch because he was walking up the stairs pretty slowly. But as he finally made his way up and he walked past me into the head office, he said, don't worry, they're not going to start the meeting without me. And as I turned into the lobby of the head office, there's an eight-foot painting of the old man. (laughs) Yeah, he's the president and founder of this company. You don't really have to worry about showing up late to the meeting when you walk in with the president because he has all authority in that meeting. And so I say to you, stick close to the one who has all authority. Walk into every room with him. And the one who has all authority is Christ. So what does that look like? Christ is your savior and your Lord. When you stick close to him, you live in him. You live for him in a way that is pleasing to him. His is the only opinion that matters. So don't let anyone else distract you from that singular singular purpose. Let no other guide direct you. That is our first step back to the cross. Follow the one who has all authority. Landmark 2, we see this in verses 11 to 14. We are made new. We're no longer of this world. So why would we live according to its rules? You see, as God's people, we are set apart. We're not part of this world. We should live our lives differently. In the days of the Old Testament, God's people bore a mark that set them apart. The men were circumcised. It was a physical mark because God's people were determined by an inherited determination. Descendants of Abraham, descendants of Jacob, ethnically members of the nation of Israel. After the cross... The gospel was made available to everyone, Jews and Gentiles, Israelites, Canadians, all nations. 
So the determination of belonging to God's people is no longer a genetic inheritance, nor is the mark a physical one. Circumcision is no longer required. It no longer means anything. But we are still set apart. We do still bear a mark. It's a spiritual mark as opposed to a physical mark. A circumcision not of the flesh, but of the heart. There is a lot going on in this portion of our text. But what it boils down to is this. God's people have always been visibly set apart. They've always borne a mark. And the way I picture it is like this. You may have to use your imagination with me. But since we are not part of this world, I like to think about those American astronauts on the moon. You know, the way they move around is a bit odd because the gravitational pull of the moon does not impact them as much as it does on Earth. Can you picture them? We Christians should move on the Earth like those astronauts on the moon. Like this world's gravitational pull doesn't affect us in the same way. And people around us should be left wondering, like, why it seems that we're so unaffected by the world's laws of physics. It should be that visible. It's a real challenge to us in the way that we live out our faith. Can you say that you live in such a way that people are left wondering why the world does not affect you in the same way as it affects the rest of humanity? Because the rules of this world no longer apply to us. They no longer constrain and drag us down. We're no longer living in the fear of man for the empty promises of this world. We now live in and for Christ. So don't let anyone use those forces to bend or distort the way forward in Christ. Our sinful nature is excised out of our heart because when we come to faith and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we die with Jesus, just as he died on the cross. This is what Paul is explaining in this passage. And just as he was resurrected, as Christ was resurrected, so are we resurrected to a new life with a new circumcised heart that no longer beats for the sinful impulses of this world, but that beats for Christ to love him and do what he loves. What's more, we now live without the condemnation of that sin. Look at verse 14. When we came to faith and accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it says the record of debt that stood against us was canceled along with its legal demands. They were nailed to the cross. I want to dwell a little bit on legal demands. What Paul is saying here is that the law demands restitution be made for our sin. When when we experience discontentment with our own life, when we look around and we see someone else's life and we say to ourselves, why can't that be my life 
We're breaking the law. Quick aside, first, I mean, we have no idea what that other life is actually like. What we assume is a blessing is likely anything but. We don't know the pressures, we don't know the responsibilities, the costs. But secondly, and much more importantly, who am I to complain about the life that I was granted? What did I ever do to earn the life that I received? Consider the timeline of my existence. I did not exist, I did not exist, I did not exist until poof, I was born. The breath of life was blown into my lungs and immediately I started crying. Not a single thing did I do to earn that breath or any breath I've taken since then. We all do this. But make no mistake, that's not a valid excuse. It's actually an egregious dereliction of duty, an utter failure to meet the minimum prerequisite level of gratitude for the tremendous gift of life. It's an absolute betrayal of the one who has granted me everything I have, and it demands I be legally convicted of crimes against my creator with a penalty of death. My crime carries a death sentence. It's a legal demand. And that's why we all know what comes at the end of this time on earth. We all know how this ends. But that execution order, where is it now? It's set aside. It's nailed to the cross. It's hanging on the very cross I should be hanging from. So I can't be manipulated by fear or guilt or shame to abandon my path for Christ. Because my legally demanded death sentence is hanging on the cross because Jesus stepped in and let himself be executed in my place in the place of all who have put their faith in Jesus. And if you're here with us this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, just consider that God knew what he was doing in having you here right now. He is calling you to turn to him, to recognize your need for him. And even now, in the quiet of your own heart, you can throw yourself at the mercy of the judge. And he will grant you clemency because Jesus has already taken care of that sentence on your behalf. I pray that you will do that even now. Now, shockingly, that's not all that he accomplished on the cross. That's only step two of three. The third landmark, at the cross, Satan was defeated. The cross is a humiliating, crushing defeat. We're told he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So who are they? They are the ones who are the spiritual leaders of this world, the prince of the power of the air and his spiritual allies. 
the devil and all those who are rooting for you to fail, who are cheering you on to give into sin. They want you to join their desperate party of discontent. They hate Jesus and they've wanted to kill him from the beginning. They've wanted his authority and power. They are driven by their own jealousy and they saw his death on the cross as their victory. But like all sin, it was an empty victory. Sin never delivers on its promise. And here, even the most grievous sin of all, the murder of Jesus, the sinless son of God, was just another empty promise. Because death could not keep Jesus. And in his resurrection, in his defeat of death, he beat their biggest move. This was the worst they could come up with. Their greatest shot, and it failed. The father of lies fell for his own lie. Not only did Jesus defeat them, he humiliated them. He put them to open shame, Paul says. Have you ever seen someone celebrate a victory they didn't win? It's humiliating. I think of, there's an NBA player named Kemba Walker who plays for the Hornets. And he, he threw a, a, a three-point buzzer beater. I put myself out there because my, I have teenage boys and they relentlessly mock my basketball form. But here it goes. He took his three-point shot from the line and he turned immediately and celebrated. Problem is, the ball missed the hoop. He didn't see that he had just lost the game until he saw it on the jumbotron. It's an absolute humiliation. He'd lost the game and was out there celebrating. It's crushing. It's a devastating, humiliating, definitive blow that Satan received because he was celebrating and was crushed in that moment. Jesus' triumph over Satan is complete. It was foretold all the way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And it's accomplished. It's finished. That's why we walk back to the cross, because that's where it was accomplished. Now when Satan tries to condemn us for our sin, his boast is his own humiliation. He's humiliating, so he rages. But don't lose sight of the fact he is defeated. We walk back to the cross to see that Christ's victory is complete. We walk back to the cross to hear Christ remind us it is finished. There is nothing more to be accomplished, nothing to add. Anything added to the gospel is misdirection and a dead end, literally. We walk back to the cross so that we can confidently see to it that no one changes the object of our faith, the gospel. When someone comes along and tries to update the gospel, to add to it, to twist it by guilt or fear or enticement, tries to tell us that we need to refight the battle against Satan, that there is something we need to accomplish for the sake of our own righteousness. 
That's when we follow Paul's directions. We retrace our steps back from our roots, from where we live, from the cross. And it goes something like this. We start at the cross and show them how crushing a defeat Satan has already been served. Then we see that Christ took our death sentence and fulfilled it in his death. He nailed our execution papers to that cross. And in his resurrection, so were we granted new life with a new heart, a circumcised heart, marked as set apart to beat for Jesus and what Jesus loves, righteousness. And so we stick close to Christ. We cling to him because he has all authority and is our Lord. And in him, we are granted that authority. In him, sin no longer has any power over us. That's why we cling to Christ just as he is, no more, no less. And as a result, we no longer experience any discontent. Rather, we're perfectly content, satisfied, and grateful for each and every breath that we're granted. We are abounding in thanksgiving for the life that we get to live in Christ which after all is what Paul called us to in verse 7, abounding in gratitude. Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. I pray that we would never lose sight of the cross and of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. I pray that the cross would shape the way that we see the world and that it would shape the way we live in Christ. It's in his name that we pray.